Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. The Black Lives Matter movement has spread quickly around the world. Over the last several weeks, there have been BLM demonstrations in nearly every major city in Europe. Tens of thousands of people showed up for protests in Berlin, Amsterdam, Paris, and London, just to name a few. There were also many protests across Latin America and Australia. Even Asian cities like Seoul and Tokyo saw Black Lives Matter protests. So how did the murder of George Floyd in Minnesota spark an anti-racism and civil rights movement so far beyond the United States? My guest today, Dominique Day, is in a unique position to analyze that question. She is an American who serves as the vice chair of the Working Group of Experts on People of African Descent, a UN human rights entity that monitors anti-black racism around the world. We kick off with a discussion of how the working group operates and how anti-black racism manifests itself differently in different places around the world. We then have a broader conversation about what is motivating the Black Lives Matter movement outside the United States. The working group, which Dominique Day vice-chairs, is part of a broader UN human rights architecture that operates under the UN Human Rights Council. And the day that I'm recording this, the UN Human Rights Council held a meeting called at the behest of African countries about anti-black racism and police brutality around the world. George Floyd's brother offered some testimony. And I think the fact that this meeting happened is just yet another example of how globalized the social justice movement has become, and also an interesting example of how the Human Rights Council can respond to grassroots pressure. So in this conversation, Dominique Day references some reports from the working group that she helped craft, and I'll post a link to those on globaldispatchespodcast.com, and I do suggest you take a look. The reports are very readable, very accessible, and very important, I think, to understanding this moment we're all living through right now. All right, so here is my conversation with Dominique Day, Vice Chair of the Working Group of Experts on People of African Descent. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So the Working Group of Experts on People of African Descent is one of the mechanisms to come out of uh, the Durban World Conference on Racism uh, in 2001. And what our mandate is, is to investigate and uh, report back to the Human Rights Council 
on the situation of people of African descent worldwide. And so we do that through country visits to individual places. And we, we look at the ways in which people of African descent uh, enjoy their human rights and uh, also maybe burdened or denied uh, human rights in, the stem- in systemic ways. Uh, we also uh, engage with individuals and groups via com- our communications procedure. So we'll, if we hear information, uh, we may issue an allegation letter. Very recently, we sent an allegation letter to the United States uh, with respect to the recent spate of killings by police and quasi-law enforcement agents uh, of, of people of African descent. And we also host uh, public and private sessions where we look often at thematic issues that are uh, of particular concern to people of African descent globally. So so you said that you recently sent a letter of allegation to the United States. Now, it's my understanding, based on reporting, that um, the U.S. government or the Trump administration specifically has a policy of systematically ignoring letters from U.N. experts uh, emanating from the Human Rights Council and human rights mechanisms of the U.N. Was this letter ignored? Well, we've certainly seen no response yet, but we sent it probably about a week ago, maybe a little bit more than that. Um, It does appear to be true. Um, I think I've heard the same thing you have, that uh, the administration, the U.S. administration has not engaged uh, meaningfully, if at all, with the special procedures of the United Nations since uh, 2017. Certainly, you're aware that the U.S. has withdrawn from the Human Rights Council and has uh, taken a big step back from its own human rights enforcement obligations, both under the treaties and uh, under its own domestic law. And I should say special procedures is a term of art that refers to um, UN independent experts, the working group like yourself and other sort of entities emanating from uh, the UN Human Rights Council, like special rapporteurs and, and things like that. They're all kind of called the umbrella term is, is special procedures. Exactly. Uh, so um, in general, you know, how do you go about your investigations and your monitoring in your work? Like what does a country visit look like? Um, our country visits are uh, these very rigorous and sort of sprints through any given country. We, you know, we, we receive an invitation, um, which is sort of a diplomatic process. Uh, technically, we have a standing invitation, but there's many countries that have technically invited us but have not actually allowed us in yet. And the idea is that we would speak with and engage with every key stakeholder uh, relating to people of African descent in the country. And that's a broad uh, mandate, even in a very small country or even in a very homogeneous country. So we typically meet with government in the morning. We meet with civil society in the evening. Um, and then we would travel from city to city to the, to the central areas where people of African descent live um, we'll visit schools, we'll visit ministries, we'll visit, uh, often we visit a prison because we do see globally disproportionate representation of people of African descent in, uh, in, car- in, in, in detention. Um, and we will uh, uh, also follow any threads we find. So recently we were in Peru just in February, uh, right a minute before uh, the COVID-19 pandemic really hit hard in the Americas. And 
we uh, we went to many different, both urban and rural areas, and had this incredible privilege of just people opening their spaces to us and speaking very frankly and very truthfully about the ways they were experiencing um, racism and, and, and anti-Black discrimination. What were people telling you in like the Peru context of what uh, anti-Black racism looks like? Yeah, I mean, we heard stories about... Um, just the contributions that uh, these communities had made to the growth of Peru that, uh, for example, mangoes themselves had been brought to Peru in the transatlantic trade and trafficking in enslaved Africans. Mangoes had originated in Africa and um, were grown and cultivated and exported, um, uh, including by people of African descent. And yet uh, they were living in absolute poverty spaces without uh, sometimes without edu- without uh, water, without uh, sanitation, that their fields lacked irrigation and the basic uh, ways in which you would actually create some stability and some predictability around agricultural industry. At the same time, in other areas of the country, we heard about the ways in which big agribusiness was being um, facilitated in ways that that undercut the human rights of people of African descent in the, in, in the country. So uh, it's a, in times of drought, you, uh, people would see the agribusiness folk would bring in their heavy machinery. They would dig um, much, much deeper wells to access water. But in the same time, that would actually sap the community wells in communities of, of, of people of African descent and create additional drought, create um, massive lack of access to water, lack of access to security for communities of African descent and, and no recourse to the state. So even in the spaces where you would think the law would protect people equally, um, environmental impact statements would often talk about the cultural contributions of people of African descent without uh, recognizing the risks these communities faced in agribusiness. The actual people in the community who worked for agribusiness talked about uh, having to wake up at three in the morning in order to be on the bus to the company at five, back home by 7 or 8 p.m. Um, only to get up the next day and do the exact same thing. So people's lives um, with poor compensation and poor stability were very much in a cycle of um, of working to feed a company that wasn't ultimately being very accountable to them. And uh, perhaps you know, far more importantly, the state's willingness to facilitate or at least turn a blind eye to that in the process. Maybe another example on the other end of um, the development spectrum is our country visit to Belgium last year. We uh, visited several cities and towns in Belgium. And uh, in the course of a one week, maybe a little bit more than that visit, and um, heard very uh, 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 stark tales of a type of systematic racism that was incredibly apparent to people of African descent and yet nearly universally denied. So I read a portion of your report on Belgium and my jaw dropped. Like, yeah. uh, as rec- I read in your report as recently as 2002, for example, they had human zoos featuring people from Cameroon. Mm-hmm. It was, I mean, just shocking to me. But what was even more shocking as your report concluded that, you know, I, white Belgian people didn't see it as terribly shocking, or many didn't, I should say. Um, there was a lot of um, of denial, and and 
sometimes that was actually grounded in just disbelief. In one community, we went in and we spoke to civil society before we spoke to the local government. And we heard about women of African descent going to the police to report domestic violence and being told, oh, well, you're African, you're tough. Do you even notice it? You know, can't you take care of it yourself? And really being denied not just the opportunity to file a claim, right, with the police, but also being denied basic human dignity, basic compassion, basic respect for their humanity. And uh, when we reported this to the government, we heard this story from many, many women. We reported this to the government and, um, you know, a very uh, kind man uh, who worked for the local municipal, uh, uh, the, the municipality stated to us, but did you hear that here? Was that a story from from this town? Um, just didn't actually even believe it could have happened in the place where they lived. And that on some level, the accessibility of the government to the people in a place like Belgium, which has this sort of staggered federalist system that involves lots of different layers of governance, um, the accessibility of the government to the people, almost from the government's perspective, hid the realities of the lives of people of African descent. Throughout Belgium, we heard about um, people not being able to find work at the proper level. Um, so people with graduate degrees working as laborers. I mean, that's outrageous. Um, whereas, you know, you have a, quite a safety net in Belgium. You had people with no, you know, you have white Belgians with, with no, uh, advanced degree at all who were able to work and make a living wage just within the current social safety net. We, um, we heard from college students whose teachers would look at their, at their work, whose teachers would, um, look at their faces and say, yeah, you probably can't do this. They would talk about doing every single thing the teacher said and still being graded much lower um, and, and not being offered any mentoring, any support, um, or any basis to understand or even to credit the fact that they were being um, seen as less than. Um, that combined with a systemic practice of teachers at, uh, in, in um, secondary schools and, and below Diverting children um, routinely from mainstream education to vocational education, including the children of very strong, highly educated parents who would be involved in the schools, um, this diversion of children was an was an immediate derailing of, of of the potential of an entire generation. But then, even the kids who managed to avoid that found themselves being um, uh, disregarded and dismissed by their college professors. And and throughout, when teachers and professors are are uh, being asked to be accountable for this, where when this information is being reflected back to them, they react by being defensive. They react by blaming the students. Um, in some cases, one of the parents um, was was told that they were going to involve child welfare if she kept demanding that her child remain in mainstream education. She had some money and some privilege, and ultimately yanked her child out of the educational system and placed her child in private school. But many, many others talked about, um, even as advanced degree holders, that their children ultimately didn't even manage to finish, didn't manage to finish high school, didn't manage to go to college, because the pressure, the systemic pressure inside the education system was absolutely overwhelming in a way that they were unable to navigate and really shocked by. So, I mean, the 
anecdotes and evidence that you collect as part of your work uh, as vice chair of the working group that you know you put together in reports and sent to governments around the world and present in front of the UN uh, Human Rights Council kind of shine a spotlight on all these um, uh, issues and, and instances of anti-Black racism around the world, I think gives you some, or at least I, the reason I wanted to reach out to you is because presumably that gives you some unique insight into how racism manifests itself differently around the world. Um, and one thing that's just really sort of interested and, you know, kind of surprised me, to be honest, is how the BLM movement here that started here in the United States seemingly went global and went global very quickly over the last several weeks. I mean, we've seen protests in you know, nearly every major city around the world, in South America, Europe, even in, in Asia. Um, I guess, how do you explain um, how the BLM movement went so global so quickly? I think that's a great question. And in part, the answer was not a surprise to us on the working group, because I have to tell you, we go from country to country to country and from continent to continent, from developed country to underdeveloped country, but we hear a lot of the same stories. We hear racial profiling by the police. We hear violence by the state. We hear about education and health and lack of food security and lack of water. And, and, right, and we hear these things in the U.S. and we also hear them right in in uh in ecuador right and 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 ultimately the the universality of some of the challenges that people of african descent face worldwide you know we recognize as being grounded in um uh, the historical context that leaves us in the you know the, the historical context of the African diaspora, which is the trade and trafficking and enslaved Africans, and the ways in which those networks, those mindsets that normalize that kind of brutalization, and the um and 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 the relationships of that actually have defined the modern global economy, right? Like when you look at the flight patterns for British Airways or KLM, right? You're also looking at historical uh, patterns for transportation, trade, and trafficking of bodies like mine. So, so on some level, the fact that this, uh, spirit that Black Lives Matter, um, managed to, uh, uplift has caught on like wildfire globally, I think speaks to a commonality that we've seen in our work throughout. I think, you know, on top of that, you know, these protests are not merely solidarity with Americans. They're not even probably at all. Yeah, like like I saw a lot of media describing these, you know, protests in Amsterdam as like a George Floyd protest. And to yeah, me, I mean, that didn't seem to ring true. All. I mean, you know, chances are, you know, they're protesting um instances of racism in the Dutch context, not necessarily, you know, what happened in, in Minneapolis, although, you know. And so, not just chances yeah. are. I mean, that's explicitly what people are saying, that absolutely they, they watch what happens in the U.S. There's probably some solidarity, but what they're saying is this is something that's manifesting in our local context in precisely the same way. And if anything, we feel that we have less ability to uplift it, less ability to seek recourse. And so you're seeing in France ongoing protests, um, uh, including counter protests by the police throwing their handcuffs to the ground when they're pro pro prohibited from using chokeholds. You've seen weeks of protests in London accompanied by data that shows that um, viol like police violence and 
uh, uh, racial profiling are real and documented instance, uh, incidents for people of African descent in England. Um, you're seeing protests in many countries that reflect people's individual, personal, and local out- outrage and frustration with this same old behavior that uh, people of African descent have been experiencing globally. And so I think the wildfire, the Black Lives Matter has um, lit around the world has nothing to do with um, with the American moment per se, but it has to do with the ongoing frustration and lack of recourse and absolute danger, that the racial terror that uh, that a lot of us live with in our day-to-day and that a lot of people would like to see resolved for the sake of their children, for the sake of their families, for the sake of their joy. We've seen here in the United States that the movement has profoundly affected public opinion. It's just a very popular, you know, American movement right now across broad swaths of uh, the U.S. population, including some of like the specific demands. I, I saw this one Reuters poll, you, you might have seen it as well, saying that something like 80 to 90 percent of Americans they surveyed agreed on some of the specific demands, like abandoning chokeholds and you know body cameras everywhere. And I, I didn't think 90 to 80 percent of Americans could agree on anything. So that was like really shocking to me. Um, are you seeing that shift in public opinion abroad? I mean, the only example I can think of is I saw the Dutch Prime Minister Mark Root sort of issue like a mild rebuke of that racist Dutch tradition of dressing up in blackface on uh, Christmas, the, which every Dutch person I talk to will insist is totally not racist. It was So that was like interesting to see um, Mark Root, at least the Prime Minister, mildly rebuke that sort of Zwarte Piet kind of thing that happens in, in Christmas. But have you seen any other examples of that? These are early days, and uh, that's not an excuse. I think there's plenty of things that can be done immediately. But I, I'm waiting to see how some countries respond. So like I was saying a second ago, the um, there was apparently uh, – I know about this because I know the counter-protest. But, you know, French police officers were protesting um, a banning on the use of chokeholds. And so I think that's um, – it's unclear to me why on earth uh, – Anybody would justify chokeholds at this point that they've been killing people. But, um, you know, we, we've seen some policy uh, moves in those spaces. Uh, it's my understanding in Canada, there's a much more active debate about the ways in which um, racist policing has um, uh, impacted Black Canadians. And again, it seems to have come as a complete surprise to the government in a lot of ways, although we also reported on it in our country visit there in 2016. Um, but there's been some promises made by the Trudeau government, and I think we're waiting to see how those play out. So, um, you know, there is, you know, a lot of us would like to see more than words, right? We want to see, this is not a moment for lip service. This is a moment to really lean into the possibility of change, but also the possibility of equal protection under the law. And the great hope is that um, as recognition uh, dawns, there will also be a real firm uh, commitment to accountability and to transparency uh, in that process. But but yeah, I think it's still early days. Um, nothing else uh, from what I've said is, is springing to the top of my head right now, though. Well, I, I mean, what I find also so interesting, you know, is that as this moves public opinion in a lot of the places that your working group is is active, I have to imagine that. Um, the recommendations that you issue in your reports will suddenly become more urgent. I mean, 
you know, as like a UN special procedure, all you can really do is report and issue recommendations and it's up to governments to take up your recommendations and to wrestle with them. And I just have to imagine, you know, this will give you more political heft and an ability to get your report seen and, and acted on in front of the right people. I mean, I think we're really hopeful that the first thing a government will do when it thinks about how should we make some change is pivot and dust off our reporting that may offer them very specific recommendations situated within their local context and accredited by their own, by, by internal expertise to their country. Um, I think one thing we do really well is really try to leverage and, um, and just to collect all of the expertise that exists within a country that we can lay our hands on. Um, and it means our country visits are, you know, five in the morning until midnight every day. But our thought is to really offer not just our own analysis as human rights experts, but to also really offer an understanding of what this looks like in a, in a local manifestation. And so our hope is that, yeah, governments will pivot towards these reports and these recommendations and will look at the ways in which something they may have dismissed or uh, very happily moved away from once our press release uh, had been issued, that this is an opportunity to really engage in a way that, that that's meaningful. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned earlier that many countries have issued invitations to you, but not actually sort of issued the kind of formal invitation required for you to do your work. But hopefully this moment will uh, enable that. Yeah, I don't know that having, I mean, I think we stand ready to help any country in any way that they ask us. Um, I don't know if having the UN working group of experts on people of African descent coming in is the number one thing a government needs to be thinking about doing right now. But I can tell you, many of the governments that have uh, been refusing our request to visit for years, uh, even maybe more than a decade, those precise governments could probably really use um, uh, some additional analysis and maybe some additional focus on these issues. So uh, there is an interesting symmetry there. Can you name names? Um, I mean, I think uh, for us, uh, one of the most important countries to visit is France. It has the largest Black population in Europe. It is the seat of a lot of um, the, the conversation about what does post-colonialism do to ensure the legacies of colonialism and enslavement are not still structuring people's experience? And um, it also has a particular position on the keeping of disaggregated data. And so I think for our working group, um, just given the sheer number of people of African descent there, I think France is an important space where we would love to both uh, offer some contributions and really partner uh, as actively with the government as it would allow. And you mentioned a certain position on disaggregated data. Presumably, you're referring to the you're referring to like this French idea of not um, you know keeping data around race. Yes. Uh, everyone is French. No one is like you know Cameroonian French. They're just French, and according to the French state. 
Yeah, and I have to tell you, I I I love France. I love Paris. I spent a good amount of time in France, just uh, out of my personal love for the country, and so I get it, and I'm even amused by it in some way. But the reality is, when we're talking about human rights, um, you can say we are all equal, but the only way you can measure whether human rights are being burdened in a in a racially disparate way, whether the human rights of people of African descent, particularly, are being denied and denied systematically. The only way you can measure that is through the collection of disaggregated data, data disaggregated by race. Um, uh, I say the only way, that's probably an overstatement, because the way we do it is we talk to people. We talk to as many people as will talk to us. And that's an important kind of data as well, people's stories, people's experiences. And the universality of that gives you a, a level of richness and complexity no data set will ever be able to approximate. But absolutely, um, I understand the idea of of French identity as being universal. But the reality is um, we often see human rights violations are most uh, visible and redressable when we're looking at much more granular data, including disaggregating by race, by gender, um, by sexual orientation, things like this. Uh, well, Dominique, thank you so much for your time. It's absolutely fascinating, and I appreciate your, your sharing your thoughts with us. Well, thank you. Thank you for your attention to this issue. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Dominique Day. That was very helpful and interesting. And yeah, I said at the outset, I mean, this is kind of incredible times we are all living through. And you know, two of the things that have most surprised me about this moment, and I reference it in the interview, is both, one, how broadly popular here in the United States the Black Lives Movement has become and the specific demands of the movement, uh, and also just how quickly it has spread around the world. Uh, so thank you, Dominique, for shining a spotlight on, on that and helping me understand that. All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.